It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great weekend. Action-packed, of course, the president's speech on Saturday, first one since the election. Sunday, the debates for the runoff, so it's kind of interesting. Also, it's going to be a great day. Uh, for a guy named Dan Gable, who's getting the Medal of Freedom. And if you're not a big wrestling guy, you probably even heard, might, maybe have heard his name, Shomon Wild World of Sports. You may debate if Michael Jordan's the greatest uh, basketball player ever, Babe Ruth or Barry Bonds, the best baseball player ever. There's no debate. He's the best wrestler ever. Hardest, most grueling sport uh, that takes the most dedication. And he's the best ever. Nobody touches him. World champion, Olympic champion, national champion. So he's going to get what he deserves. And Iowa should be proud. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Giuliani has made very serious accusations. The question is, which institution is designed constitutionally to look into it? Is it the state legislature? Is it the courts? Is the clock running in such a way that there won't be time to look into this? Uh, Alan Dershowitz, the latest on the president's fight to overturn the 2020 results, and his lead attorney, Rudy Giuliani, checks into a hospital with the coronavirus. The case is the states and the stakes as we unwind the president's game plan and new details on how he will handle the inauguration should he not prevail. Number two. Mayor Garcetti has approved this being set up for a movie company. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face. No question. I've been saying that from day one. Angela Martin, a restaurant owner, big payroll Forced to shut down again. COVID cases surge. Vaccine approval four days away. This is an insane lockdown causing rage around America from Staten Island to California. And the world's aid. And by the way, uh, around the world, it's the same type of suffering. Politicians doing it, not getting the effects they want and destroying lives and livelihoods in the process. Meanwhile, an aid package gathers momentum among Democrats and Republicans. What it means for you. Number one. My opponent, radical liberal Raphael Warnock, has called police officers gangsters, thugs, bullies, and a threat to our children. My opponent is going to work really hard trying to push a narrative about me. I actually brought together the law enforcement officers here in this city. Yeah, to condemn them. Uh, Unbelievable, this is even close. Georgia runoff, Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock debate and expose each other's flaws and underline what we all knew. It's up to the president and his ability to bring Republicans and the Republican Party together whether they win or lose. Listen, if the president wants to get momentum, the best way to get it is get both these Senate seats. And then you go out and then you realize that this whole party's behind you. And then you go out and do the best you can to deliver the House. And in 2024, you become Glover, Grover Cleveland Part 2. But the president's got to go out of his way to keep his angst with Brian Kemp quiet along with the secretary of state, in my opinion, and just push them to get it right. And to do signature verification, recounting the same votes does nothing, even though they did found thousands of votes uncounted, most of which went to the president. But last night, 
was the Senate debate. At stake, the majority in the Senate. I mean, do you want to hear the majority leader, Chuck Schumer? I'm in New York. I got to listen to him every day. You do not want him leading the country. You think Nancy Pelosi bothers you? You do not understand. Let's look at the fundraising numbers. So far, Warnock has raised $27 million, Loeffler $28. It shows Karl Rove doing his job. However, on the other side, Ossoff's got $32 million, Purdue $21 million. I do not know why Purdue didn't show up last night. And I don't know why both of them don't address their stock issues. One's the front page of the New York Times, David Purdue, 2,000-plus trades. Okay, tell me what that's about. You're good at it, I guess. I don't know. Maybe you're into, you know, some people are into um, some people are into fantasy baseball, fantasy football. He's into trading stocks. I'm not too sure uh, that's the best move for a sitting senator. If you really want to trade that bad, go do it. So explain yourself. You got exonerated. Kelly uh, Loeffler, you got exonerated. Why don't you answer the question directly, especially if it's an answer you can't wait to have? For Raphael Warnock, he's already said uh, if you're in the military, you can't worship God. Nice try. He already said that uh, Fidel Castro came to visit his church. He didn't condemn him. He said, I didn't book him. He also said America needs to uh, uh, repent for its uh, culture of whiteness. Thanks. Where does that stuff come out? Why is this guy even close, let alone, according to some, leading? So here's a little of the exchanges uh, last night uh, between the two. Now, here is Warnock on court packing. Very easy answer. Say you're not into it. Cut eight. I'm really not focused on it. Um, And I think that too often the politics in Washington has been about the politicians. Uh, I'm a pastor. And so when I think about these issues, I think about the people that I've had to stand with uh, in the critical care units uh, while their loved one was dying or between life and death. And not only are they concerned about the sickness, they're wondering how in the world are they going to pay for it. If Kelly Leffler has her way, 1.8 million Georgians with pre-existing conditions. All right, fine. Back to the health care conversation. Answer the question. I mean, to me, it was two amateurs big time. Doug Collins would have been so much better. What are the people of Georgia thinking? And what is this Brian Kemp thinking? She seems like a fine person, good basketball player, understand her humble beginnings, but she's a rookie with so much at stake. The president should have won with Doug Collins, and so should the governor, because he earned it. Kelly Loeffler is a donator, uh, a donor, and the governor turned around and gave it to her. This guy, Brian Kemp's a piece of work. But meanwhile, this is a lot closer than anyone thought. Listen to some of the exchange. I mean, Stacey Abrams, everyone's so afraid of her. She lost the governor's race, never conceded. So, and he never, Raphael Warnock is on Kelly Loeffler for how to, the president not conceding. Well, there's Stacey Abrams. Listen to this, cut three. Listen, uh, voter suppression <clears throat> is something that happens all across our country. It's happened here in the state of Georgia. Uh, but Stacey Abrams did not uh, refuse to acknowledge the fact Uh, that her opponent was the governor. Here we are several weeks after the election, and Kelly Loeffler continues to cast doubt on an American democratic election. Uh, It's time to put this behind us and get focused on the concerns of ordinary people. Radical liberal Raphael Warnock has partnered with Stacey Abrams in these voter suppression conspiracies when, in fact, we have record turnout in our state year after year. And, you know, it's unfortunate that the um, uh, focus is on uh, a debate about who won the election when this process is still playing out and President Trump has every right to every legal recourse. 
And let's talk about that. So the president's fighting it out. He can't believe he lost uh, Georgia. And there's a big story in the Huffington Post about how they thought it was in the wind column already and they didn't spend the resources. They had money left. So I'm not sure what happened at the end, but I don't think the president was served too, too well by his team. Where is Bill Stepien today? I mean, does he think the president lost? If not, are you still getting paid? Do something. Organize something. Why weren't they uh, examining these Dominion machines? Why weren't they looking at these write-in ballots and ways to stem the tide? Why didn't they look at the loosening of these of these signature verification issues that popped up in Georgia and in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania? I mean, why is that in uh, in our lap? Why is it in the president's lap? He wasn't served well. But right now, if the president can get these two victories, it'll be beginning to get him on a winning streak. Daniel Pletka, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, cut 22. If he has anybody to blame, it will be himself because he is the one who has chosen to make this about him. He is the one who has chosen to continue this spurious narrative about the stolen election. And he had a couple of of kind words for the two candidates who are up in Georgia in a few weeks, but he spent most of last night's rally talking about himself. And he is going to depress turnout and he will get the blame. Make no mistake. As of now, he does have to unify and, and not make uh, Kelly Loeffler choose between the governor and the Senate and this president. So I get that. I did think he talked a lot about them. He did tell them what was at stake. I love the fact that Melania showed up at the event. People just like to talk about that relationship. You do not show up in Georgia if there's a problem with support for being president. And I think when times, I just think that people love to judge that relationship like no first couple I've ever seen. And every time they would stand the test of the stress. Next, on lockdowns, and I don't want to take too much time because I do want to get in to uh, phone calls, one 866 These lockdowns are way overdone. They know not to use the word lockdown because it's politically crypto, it's politically third rail. However, they're doing it. They're doing it in New York again. They're cracking down all over in Illinois. They're cracking down in uh, California as if behavior is the issue. Yeah, there's some college kids partying. and Maybe there's some backyard parties that shouldn't happen. But for the most part, you've got reputable businesses doing the best they can to do with Target and Costco and Walmart and Kmart are doing. Stay opened. But that didn't stop them from shutting down. Listen to Angela Marston, owner of the Pineapple Hill Grill, gets word that she's got to shut down today, goes to pull into her parking lot to organize a protest, and sees they're shooting a movie in the parking lot. They set up tents and a cafeteria right in her face. Do you believe this? Cut 44. I walk into my parking lot, and obviously Mayor Garcetti has approved this, has approved this being set up for, for a movie company. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face, that's safe. This is safe. It's of course it's safe to eat outdoors. And if they even said to her, I need these restaurants to get these 15-minute tests, like the ones that are right down the block from me, where there hasn't been any lines. Maybe it's not the case with you. Maybe I lucked out in New York, of all places. You can't get that. If you want to give people a 15-minute test, we usually wait more than that for a table at a popular restaurant. We could do that. 
provide some financing, uh, flood it out to these areas. If I am a, a councilman or if I am a governor or a mayor, I'm walking these streets. What do you need to stay open? Uh, we got so many positive tests here. Uh, have restaurant associations work with you to police them in a positive way. Dr. Scott Atlas, who just walked away uh, from the president's council on fighting this virus because the criticism became too great and he felt like he was done. He said, listen, this whole lockdown doesn't work. The WHO said it. Cut 43. We have to also beware of this. The public faces of public health, they keep saying we're not for lockdowns, but the lockdowns are what they're pushing. The policies of restricting and closing businesses, of preventing kids from being in person in schools, of restricting person to person visits, of telling families they can't see each other, this is lockdown. Now, the alternative and the appropriate policy that I had been advising the president on was always a very, very significant, careful protection of the high-risk people. And we did that at the White House. We pushed that with increased protective equipment. We want to increase the protection of the high-risk people, but we cannot confine healthy people to, uh, to their homes. It's really creating a disaster. On working-class people... The rich can handle it. They sit in their mansions in their home gyms and they Zoom or they have enough money saved where it doesn't matter if they work for a year. But as this woman, they say two-thirds of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. Poverty is going to skyrocket. Unemployment, 6.7%. And we're doing better than most countries. So poverty is also a health condition. Do they realize that? Of course they don't. Because they're getting paid and they stay in government housing with mayors and governors for the most part. So Mayor Garcetti sees this viral video, and I retweeted it, by the way. Said this, my heart goes out to Miss Martson and the workers at the Pineapple Hill Saloon who have to simply, um, who have to comply with state and county public health restrictions that close outdoor dining. No one likes these restrictions, but I do support them as our hospital ICU beds filled to capacity and cases have increased by 500%. We must stop this virus before it kills thousands of other Angelinos. Apples and oranges. They're not. Only 3% of all the cases can be traced back to outdoor restaurant seating. Next, pull in the ship again. You had the ship last time. You didn't use it. Pull it in again. Number two, you could expand hospital beds. Number three, uh, what are we doing to get people treated in their homes since 99.6% of the people uh, do not lose their life in this and those susceptible are in a certain bracket? And for the most part, successful hospitals are 90% filled anyway. So you don't destroy a whole state in order to stop hospital beds from filling up. The one does not have to be linked to the other. And I use this analogy today, and I'm not sure anyone gets it, but it makes sense to me. Pete Rose was asked in the 70s, he said, Pete, you're going through a very public, brutal divorce. How are you doing it and still hitting 360? And he said, I'd rather hit 360 going through a divorce than 260. They're making everyone hit 160. 160, everyone is failing because of this stress that has nothing to do with them. Why are you making it worse? Why does Florida seem to get it? Why does Texas seem to get it? They have the virus, but they're giving people an option to make a living, to limit the damage, because suicide is also, according to reports, not good for your health. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. What we say is all of our interventions need to be science and evidence-based. And what do we know? We know that flying on an airplane, we know going to work, we know universities, K-12 through schools, these aren't major vectors of disease transmission. We're seeing it spread from multi-household gatherings, overcrowded indoor restaurants and bars. These are the settings where interventions need to take place because we've got to build public support. And you don't have it. We've given up on you. In Staten Island, you arrested the bar owner again. All he wants to do is be able to earn a living. Do you understand how brutal this business is? Uh, bar owning, you know, you could be shut down anytime. Somebody drinking underage uh, all the time. There's food, uh, food inspectors coming in. You have uh, the constant sense of uh, people raising your rates, uh, your rent, the parking. It's hard making a living, especially in Staten Island. And you shut you down three times when two blocks away because your zip code, your zip code policy, you have other bars opening. So they arrested uh, those guys over the weekend. We had a sheriff on today. And that sheriff said uh, in California, I think it was Riverside, California. He said, I will not enforce this because you're asking cops to be the bad guys again. And the same people that you are defunding, especially in California, in Los Angeles, took uh, $750 million out, cheered on by the future, uh, perhaps, vice president of the United States. And then, of course, in Minneapolis, you defunded. Of course, in New York, you get a billion dollars out of the budget. And now you go, go knock on that door and tell that bar owner. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share who has employees and pays taxes and works his butt off. Maybe it was his dream. Maybe he took out huge loans to shut down again instead of taking personal responsibility uh, for the people there. And by the way, if these restaurants 
are not complying. There's no plexiglass. There's no spacing. They, the waiters and waitresses aren't wearing masks. The bartenders are sloppy. People don't go. No one's making people go out to eat. But if you're going to go to Home Depot, you're going to go to Costco. Uh, and by the way, there's places to eat in those places. Starbucks, you go sit down, but you can't go there. And that's what people are going crazy about. Listen, when we come back, Miranda Devine on the, the craziness in Georgia. Uh, Miranda Devine on the speech on Saturday night. And Miranda Devine on, uh, from the New York Post on what we can expect uh, in Georgia in the long term. And why uh, we can't believe anything we're hearing from these recounts. Georgia's got to straighten everything out right now. But uh, some, the, right now their biggest roadblocks are Republicans. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. What has shifted now when they're on board with this piece that's come out of the South? Perhaps you missed what I said earlier. Joe Biden committed to ending and crushing the virus. What was then before was not more of this. This is, has simplicity. It's what we've had in our bills. It's for a shorter period of time. But that's okay now because we have a new president. How cynical is that? So you're holding everybody else hostage because you didn't like President Trump while you went back and forth to California in your horrible district where not traditionally, but under your leadership with all the power you have as speaker. You would think one of the scandals would be there's too much going to my district and my people. Instead, all you have is too much. Only thing that's too much in your district is the homeless situation and the poverty. And once again, you're locking down. Let's bring in Miranda Devine. You wrote about this a couple of days ago. And this soundbite drove you nuts, Miranda, of the New York Post. What, what, what bothered you most about it? She's just Nancy Pelosi, shameless. She lets uh, needy people languish for months while she plays politics. And, you know, we all know it's naked politics. She wanted everybody to be miserable before the election so that they would just blame Donald Trump because that's all she's done. Her entire speakership is just play on the politics of hatred and sort of the anti-Trump derangement syndrome. And, you know, I don't know how anybody can take her seriously. She is the most cynical and the cruelest and most heartless speaker that I think we've seen. Don't you think that she got the rebuke in this election when she thought it was preposterous that she would lose seats? Well, she was so arrogant. Remember before the election, she was making all these confident predictions that there would be a blue wave and that the Democrats would win seats. And now they've lost at least a dozen House seats. And uh, Nancy Pelosi looks like she could actually lose her race for another term, which would be fantastic. I mean, good riddance to her. Yeah, exactly. As speaker, exactly. And because basically 
Um, there were 15 Democrats who voted against her in the last Congress, and 10 of them are coming back. If they all vote against her again, she's gone as Speaker. So, uh, you know, I think that this election was just a repudiation of her, of her divisive tactics, of her just complete callousness towards the need out there. You know, these stimulus bills, these checks that go to people who are unemployed to help small businesses, um, she didn't care about that. She just kept on smuggling in these ridiculous kind of pet projects of hers like, you know, weed dispensary relief and uh, diversity quotas for corporations, you know, stuff that had absolutely nothing to do with helping people. She's she's just so riven after... She's 80 years old and after so long in politics, I don't think she is in touch with the real world or real people and the way they live. And you mentioned San Francisco, her city, which you know, is just in such a parlous state. Um, and and she's there sitting in front of her, you know, several thousand dollars worth of refrigerators eating her designer ice cream in the middle of the pandemic when people are suffering. And it didn't even occur to her that that might set the wrong tone. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that's how clueless that James Corden putting her on might be not good optics. You would think a leader would just go after a member that would be so that uh, that uh, politically blind or numb. But instead it was her. So no one talks to her and says anything negative about her. So she's able to pull that off. So it looks like this before I end this deal and we talk about some other things. I just want you to, people at home to know that 900 billion could be injected into the system. And this has a lot to do with moderates. Here's Joe Manchin yesterday on Meet the Press, Cut 39. Well, it's a deal that must come together. We don't have a choice now. It's one of those things that has to be done. And I'll tell you the reason why. This is a, I want people to understand this is a COVID emergency relief. Started out as a relief framework. You've seen the framework. <clears throat> How we came to $908 billion in all the different categories. And what we did as a group, we came together and said, listen, we have got to do something. Are you worried that you're probably uh, doing less than you should be doing? Chuck, this is an emergency relief package only till April 1, the first quarter, to get through the first quarter. Every indication says more money is needed. We see that. This gets us through, basically, the lifelines that people need and the small businesses that can survive and not go under. Unemployment checks that people are going to be losing. So they're shutting everything down and not providing any money for the last seven months. They thought we, the worst was over, but as the virus came back, they didn't respond. But this is coming from the bottom up. The leadership just stopped, Miranda. Well, it's nice to hear from the Democrats finally from their moderate people because they've been completely silent yep. up till now. And I think they've been emboldened by the results in this election where, you know, the the crazy radical ideas like defunding the police, Nancy Pelosi's intransigence on the stimulus bills, that all hurt Democrats. It cost them seats. And I think that's empowered the moderates to actually speak up and try and take back their party. But, you know, it's really shameful that Nancy Pelosi was offered a compromise deal by the White House in October, twice as much money as that $900 billion, and she she rejected it. It just wasn't enough for her because she wanted her own pet projects funded. So let's talk about uh, what's at stake in Georgia. I just played Daniel Pletka, who, by the way, voted for President Trump. She was on our show to declare that she thought Joe Biden was a joke. She says the president, this is going to be the president's to win or lose. 
clearly they're just saying, Mr. President, I'm with you, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. Do you agree with that? Yeah, look, I do. Um, I mean, the, the, the stakes of that those Georgia Senate runoffs are so high, it's incalculable. The the future of America, um, the ability, this, this sort of incredibly um, bizarre moment where suddenly the Democrats may have power in the White House, the House and the Senate, and at the same time as they have these radical socialist fringe pushing Joe Biden, who's a very weak uh, candidate, in a direction that America won't be able to come back from in a hurry. You know, things like um, stacking the Supreme Court, things like creating two new states and abolishing the Electoral College that will entrench one-party rule for at least a generation. Um, This sort of thing would have been unheard of previously, but with the the new kind of radical Democrats, nothing is off the table. I mean, you heard Chuck Schumer say that before the election. Nothing is off the table, and there will be nothing to stop them unless the Republicans hold the Senate. And that's what is at stake with those two uh, Senate seats. And, you know, even if Georgians don't like Governor Kemp and they don't like the two candidates, um, you know, they have to do what President Trump has done, hold their nose and go and support them because it's about much more than internal GOP politics in Georgia. It is really about the future of this country. And, and by the way, think about what a great night Republicans had. The state houses, the House holding on to the Senate. One went away from holding on to the Senate in a year in which they should have lost it. John Radcliffe, who's director of national intelligence, former congressman, said this about the perfect storm of events in a negative way that happened to allow these new voting systems to take place. Cut 51. But the pandemic created the opportunity to to do those types of things. Um, And what you saw was lawmakers um, in uh, states across the country adjusting to the pandemic, saying, we have to vote differently in this country because of the pandemic. And, and we saw that. And as a result, it's a little wonder when you have procedures uh, adopted as little as 90 days before the election that there's so much question and controversy. So it was built into the system. And I just want to get your thoughts, uh, the, uh, because we're in this place now with the presence in uh, cont- uh, contending the outcome in seven separate states. Well, the Democrats used the pandemic as an excuse to enact the kind of weakening of voter ID laws and all the other get-out-the-vote tactics that they have been trying to push through. Um, You know, Nancy Pelosi said that was her number one priority in the last Congress, was to weaken the laws so that Democrats could could change the rules to suit themselves and tilt the scales in their favour. And they managed to use the pandemic to do that. And, um, you know, uh, that, I think, more than these isolated instances of voter fraud, which have, you know, there's good evidence for, I think more than that was the fact that the Democrats effectively changed the system so that they could legally ballot harvest. And that is what... Um, I think needs to be stopped. And if there's one thing that that President Trump um, has done by highlighting and challenging these election results, which are most peculiar, it is that 
going forward, we should ensure that there is mandatory voter ID. Uh, it is ridiculous that in all other walks of life, you have to show your driver's license or some sort of identification, but not when you vote. So I think we'll be able to thank President Trump for that, as well as all the other things that he did in his first term. Believe me, everyone's going to be asking, does my state have Dominion voting? Does my county have Dominion voting? I'd like to know in an absentee ballot, is it going to be uh, signature verification? And now that's going to be in our vernacular, in our vocabulary, come every election day. That's what, because the president's challenging all this. I just haven't seen many victories yet, even though Pennsylvania could end up in the Supreme Court. Out of, I think, 55 lawsuits, he's lost 37. So yeah, I don't think he's got the best good. legal. Yeah, I don't think he's got the best legal team. I think Rudy's doing the best he can. But this is not his this is not his area of expertise. He's not an election lawyer. Yeah. And look, the fact is that the president had a lot of fantastic constitutional lawyers when he was up in his impeachment uh, situation, um, but they haven't come forward this time. And I think that's partly a, a function of just how difficult, just how high the bar is to actually flip the election now. You know, it's it's 40-some thousand votes, um, but it's in, you know, at least three states that you have to overturn. And there's just not enough evidence. Really, the sleight of hand, the malfeasance that went on has went on for weeks before the election, and that was in changing those rules, weakening those rules. Um, and, you know, the, the upshot is that... that almost half of Americans have no faith that that election was clean. You know, um, 75% of Republicans think there's something fishy about Joe Biden's win. 30% of Democrats agree with them. That is a very unhealthy situation to have. And it is all because the Democrats decided that by hook or by crook, thanks to $400 million, don't forget from Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook billionaire, uh, that all got poured into Democrat-held cities to try and up their uh, their vote from their voters. Uh, all of that happened. It was not within the spirit of the law, even if it may have been lawful because they changed the law. Um, I just think... You know, at this stage, it is much too difficult. It's too high a bar to change anything. I don't think that uh, the president's going to be able to claw back a second term. But uh, at the very least, I think that he has every right to fight this to the end. And after all, what did the Democrats do to him when he was legitimately I know. elected yeah, in 2016, but spy on him and try to impeach him and delegitimize him? You know, and, and it's just so ironic that the media is screaming at Republicans and saying, oh, sore loser Trump. When look at the way they behaved for four years. Yeah, and by the way, uh, Hillary Clinton still hasn't given in, and Stacey Abrams doesn't <laughs> get given in. And uh, and the last thing on this is the president likes to make history, uh, to be to come back again in four years, to win these two Senate races, do the best he can to get the House, and then be poised to take it back in 2024. You know, Biden's not going to be able to run again anyway. So uh, once he sees that as his goal, uh, look out. Thanks so much, Miranda Devine. Thanks, Brian. Great to talk to you. You got it. Back with your calls, 1-866-408-7669. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. You're with Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. 
This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The prediction of Jimmy Carter and James Baker in 2000 and their commission has come true, and it is a bit of a nightmare. They warned, after taking a very careful study, this bipartisan commission warned that absentee voting, mail-in voting, is a huge potential for fraud. And that's what we have heard from Rudy. So what do we now do about it? I think, to be honest, we're running out of time (laughs) because the Electoral College meets on December 14th. So it's going to take an extraordinary action by legislatures and so forth. And Rudy is rightly pointing to legislatures because therein lies the ultimate, other Mm -hmm. than the Supreme Court of the United States, ability to have Mm -hmm. an effect on the just concluded election. The problems built into the system before November 3rd, regardless of the outcome, with Ken Starr. We knew it was a problem. Jimmy Carter knew it was a problem. Jim Baker studied it, and it came out to be a problem. That's not politics. That's a fact. Uh, Chris is in Michigan. Hey, Chris. Hey. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I'm one of the, as I explained earlier, I'm one of the 70-some million that does not agree that Joe Biden won. And if there's any discrepancies with all this information that's coming out, and now they're saying that Joe Biden's president-elect, I'm not buying it. In what way in Michigan do you see a problem? Where? Well, I'm in Clare County. And if the there was in Antrim County, the 6,000 votes that were switched, and now they're looking at these machines, and then you hear that the Secretary of State want, wants it all wiped out, there's a, that's an issue to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, they've been in there a number of times. they got to make up tens of thousands of votes. Uh, we'll have to see, uh, Chris. It's, it's a matter of winning, as you know, not the popular vote. Going into those states and winning six individual battles, they probably need to win three of them. Eric, who's on WOKV in Jacksonville. Hey, Eric. Hey there, Ryan. I just wanted to know what you thought of uh, Ruby Friedman uh, counting votes by herself and uh, they pulled them uh, suitcases of ballots out from underneath the couches in Georgia. I know. They seem to have debunked that, said it was typical, and there was Republicans in the room uh, that Rudy Giuliani knew there was more to that tape and deceptively edited it. That's the comeback from the Republican Secretary of State. So, you know, we're not on the table. We weren't there that night. So we're kind of hostage to the reports. Howard, listen on KOIL, COIL in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Howard. Hey, Brian. Where do the Democrats get off telling us how many people we can have in a room on Thanksgiving in our own home? I know. And then as we're reminded this weekend with Warnock in Georgia, they're saying that the U.S. government can't fit in a hospital room, get between a patient and her doctor. Right. Very good point. That's what he brought up when it comes to abortion. He goes, I'm, you know, I'm pro-life, but I, I'm pro-choice, he said, because I don't think there's room for the government to make that decision. But, of course, there's room for the government to destroy everything else in your life, right, and tell you you can't go visit your parents uh, in a senior citizen's home and tell you you can't go see a, a, your dying uh, relative or friend. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a problem. I have a huge problem with these unqualified people deciding what's best for us. So I think it's out of control. Hey, go to Brian Kilmeade Show anytime, uh, dot com if you have to travel and leave your local affiliate. Also, sign up for the, the podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, on iHeart, or com. And if you want any of my books signed, got about a week of a window yet, personalized too, just go to com. All the books are there. It'll come right to my local bookstore. 
and I'm able to personalize it and get it out before Christmas. Uh, thanks for listening. Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade from New York. Heard around the country, heard around the world. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Ben Dominic will be joining us shortly. And then we have Jim Trusty at the bottom of the hour to talk about the president's big quest to overturn this election before it's certified on the 14th of December. Most of the states got it certified by the end of the week. Uh, we'll discuss all that as well as uh, discuss the other breaking news that's happening during the show, as we always do. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Giuliani has made very serious accusations. The question is, which institution is designed constitutionally to look into it? Is it the state legislature? Is it the courts? Is the clock running in such a way that there won't be time to look into this? Alan Dershowitz, the latest on the president's fight to overturn the 2020 results as his lead attorney, Rudy Giuliani, checks into the hospital with the coronavirus. The cases, the states and the stakes uh, will unwind it all as the president's game plan details how he plans on moving forward along with the inauguration plans for the president. You're not going to believe it. Number two. Mayor Garcetti has approved this being set up for a movie company. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face. It is Angela uh, Martin who owns this uh, great bar and restaurant by all accounts and sh- forced to shut down because of the incompetence of uh, political officials in California. COVID cases surge as the vaccine approval is four days away. This is an insane lockdown again that the WHO told us not to do. People are pushing back and an aid package is on the horizon, which is good news, by the way. Number one. My opponent, radical liberal Raphael Warnock, has called police officers gangsters, thugs, bullies, and a threat to our children. My opponent is going to work really hard trying to push a narrative about me. I actually brought together the law enforcement officers here in this city. Yeah, uh, nice uh, debate yesterday, and I'm being sarcastic. It was really discouraging to watch the Georgia runoff. Kelly Loeffler and Raphael Warnock debate and expose each other's flaws and underline what we all knew. It's up to the president to deliver both these Senate races. David Perdue mysteriously did not show up to debate John Ossoff. If you're good and there's allegations about you and stock investments, show up and just knock him out of the park. Like the investigation revealed, nothing was wrong there. Ben Dominich, publisher of The uh, Federalist, joins us now. Hey, Ben. Hey, Brian. Good to be with you twice this morning. Happy I know, to join you I know. and what a, talk about yeah, all Yeah, what a joy for you. Uh, Kelly, <laughs> uh, Kelly Leffler, you know, she's obviously smart and intelligent, but she's obviously a rookie. I mean, it was one of her first debates ever. Yeah. She was relatively robotic in her responses and never took the easy one was, tell everyone what happened with this stock investment. You were exonerated for a reason. Explain it once and for all, but she kept ignoring it. 
You know, I, look, I understand that part of the motivation for picking her over, say, some of the other candidates who could have been picked uh, to be in this seat at this moment uh, was because she could self-fund. You know, she's she's a wealthy woman. She's She's got the ability to, to sort of raise – she doesn't need to raise money in the way that uh, other candidates might have. Uh, but I think in this case, I don't know where that money's going. Because is it going to somebody – can't it go to somebody who could help you be better on TV, better on a camera? I just felt like she was very robotic, very scripted, you know, reading off the talking points and repeating them over and over again. At the same time, on the other side, Reverend Warnock it didn't really do himself any favors. I felt like he was getting all these softballs, but he was still kind of bungling them. When you can't answer a basic question, an anticipated question about being arrested related to this child abuse investigation that was going on in a way that clarifies it for people. Look, these are two very flawed candidates, but I think that what we understand is they are vehicles for an agenda, an agenda of the left and of the right. Warnock is, is going to be a vehicle of the leftist cultural war agenda. And I think that, you know, Leffler is definitely going to be a, a, you know, a vehicle for the kind of Republican agenda that people have experienced over the past couple of years. They just really needed to, to emphasize, I felt like their strengths last night, and they really didn't do a good job of it, Brian. No, they didn't. Uh, so we'll see. They wouldn't even look at each other either. Uh, Warnock uh, yeah. looked a little, but uh, Kelly had no idea that he was even sitting next, standing next to her. Uh, <laughs> but you know, she's got to go out and win it now, and it's going to really depend on the president winning or losing. Here's a little of the debate that went back and forth. My opponent, radical liberal Raphael Warnock, has called police officers gangsters, thugs, bullies, and a threat to our children. When I gave him the chance to apologize in our first debate, he declined. He's also said that you can't serve God and the military. He's used the Bible to justify these types of attacks and make other divisive statements. When you uh, receive the private briefing regarding the coronavirus pandemic. You dumped millions of dollars of stock uh, in order to protect your own investments. And then weeks later, when there came an opportunity to give ordinary Georgians an extra $600 of relief, you said you saw no need and called it counterproductive. So uh, she really had no answer to that. Uh, and she also, but it's amazing yeah. how Ford Warnock is. This guy's mentor was Reverend Wright. This guy was part of a uh, congregation that invited Fidel Castro in. This said America's got to uh, uh, apologize for its whiteness, his culture of whiteness. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a, a dream opponent in Georgia. You, you know, you really do see a situation here where you have uh, someone who I think a capable politician, maybe one with a little bit more experience than Kelly Loeffler, could really take him apart. Uh, but I think that that's not what really happened last night, and I think that that's unfortunate uh, given the Republicans' need to hold these seats. One of the things, though, Brian, that I think is going to be a real test here is there's this kind of spin, this pre-spin about this election, that this all depends on, uh, you know, uh, President Trump and everything, you know, related to him. Uh, and you can already hear from the D.C. consultants the idea that, well, you know, if they lose, it's because President Trump was, uh, you know, making too big of a stink about the election or bringing up fraud or things like that. That's not what I'm hearing from from Georgia voters. I, I have family who are down there who I've talked to. And what they've basically told me is they feel like this is just uh, sort of two establishment-friendly Republican candidates who aren't necessarily close to the president, who are trying to pretend to be closer to him, uh, you know, in order to get his voters out. And I think that 
does agree that that exists as a challenge. Uh, it is a significant one. For someone like Kelly Leffler, I think that she really needs to emphasize, if you want to see the Trump agenda continue uh, in Washington, you need to elect someone like me, uh, because otherwise the, the lesson that people will take from this election is that if President Trump isn't himself on the ballot, uh, then we can just revert the way that Republicans used to do things of trying to appeal to you know more socially liberal suburban mm-hmm. voters and the like, uh, as opposed to the working class, more populist agenda that President Trump has advocated. So does this make sense to you that uh, that David Perdue would get 88,000 more votes than the president? <laughs> See, that's that, that's the thing that's interesting to me. There's a lot of questions I have about this Georgia election, and it's part because it, it, there were a lot of questions before about Georgia's uh, uh, problems when it came to uh, 20, uh, 2018. In fact, if you rewind the clock, Brian, you'll see that it's the liberals like John Oliver who are out there saying that there were security problems and questions about ballots and things like that because they were pushing for Stacey Abrams to be the governor of Georgia. Uh, and that was their whole frame for everything that was going on. Suddenly now, Two years later, they're like, oh, no, everything's great. Everything's pure. Everything's white as the driven snow. Uh, and nothing nothing untoward definitely happened here. L- look, I-, I think that we have a lot of questions about this. And to, to the quote that you had earlier, I think that there's a real problem, uh, as Alan Dershowitz pointed out, uh, when it came when it comes to the kind of entity that we need in order to investigate everything that went on in Georgia, because I'm not sure that it currently exists uh, as we have the government set up. We have this assumption built in uh, that these elections are, are going to be something that we can all have trust in and faith in. And I'm not sure that that's something that is actually true and it needs to be fixed before the next midterm. So I, uh, yeah, I would think so. And what do you think of the president's speech Saturday? I don't know how much you had a chance to see of it, but he did go out of his way to say, you need to, you need to vote for these senators. And he said it many times. You know, I thought he actually was very impressive when it came to advocating for uh, the need to continue his agenda. He talked about all the different items uh, where. You know, sometimes it's Republican orthodoxy and sometimes it's breaking with Republican orthodoxy. Uh, And he emphasized that, you know, hey, if you like these things, you need to vote for these senators. And to me, that was really interesting because it's an indication that he does to some degree recognize that he is the leader of the party. And that's something that I think is significant going forward versus, say, uh, saying, you know, oh, these Republicans, they're they're not going to stand with me. They're disloyal or something like that, breaking away from them. Uh, Ben, just to move on and talk about something that's really important, and that's the vaccine to stop the uh, this raging virus. So Joe Biden said, you know, I got to look at this plan and I'm not impressed. Cut 30. There is no detailed plan that we've seen anyway as to how you get the vaccine out of a container into an injection syringe into somebody's arm. Well, the problem is he shouldn't know because he hasn't been briefed yet. Listen to a very apolitical Dr. Mansif Salawi. He is the Operation Warp Speed. Uh, excuse me. He is uh, he is on Face the Nation, and he is with Pfizer. He's the CEO. Cut 32. Well, I think we may start to see some impact on the most susceptible people probably in the month of January and February, but the, on a population basis for 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 our lives to start getting back to normal we're talking about april or may and therefore it's absolutely vital that everybody a take comfort in the fact that we have light at the end of the tunnel and find the energy in that to continue to wear our mask distance wash our hands pay attention to and here um, this is a better one secretary azar responds directly to biden with all respect that's just nonsense we have 
comprehensive plans from the CDC, working with 64 public health jurisdictions across the country, as our governors have laid out very detailed plans that we've worked with them on. We're leveraging our retail pharmacies, our hospitals, our public health departments, our community health centers. We have the McKesson-built kits that have the syringes, the diluent, the needles, the PPE to administer. Uh, this is being micromanaged and controlled by the United States military, as well as our incredible private sector. We do hundreds of millions of vaccinations a year. We're leveraging the systems that are known and that work here in right. the United States. He hadn't even been briefed on it yet, and he made that statement that there's no plan. Does he know that he think he tells everyone he won the election? Why is he politicizing this whole thing? Brian, I, I cannot be more disappointed in Joe Biden and the way that he has treated this whole this whole process. And frankly, Kamala Harris as well, talking down the prospects of the vaccine. I don't know if you saw that stat poll from a couple of months ago, but it showed that there was a, a double digit drop in the number of, of uh, minority Americans who said they would get the vaccine after all of this scaremongering. It's so irresponsible. It's so dangerous. And the flip side of this, Brian, is this is one of the greatest achievements in the history of healthcare I know. in the world. We have never seen a novel virus like this have a vaccine within four years. Within four years, okay? This, so we beat all of the, the expectations here. It's a phenomenal accomplishment. And I think that what we should be saying is, you know, hey, wow, this is, this is great. Let's make sure that we can get it out there. Let's make sure we prioritize the right people, the people who are going to need this vaccine the most. Uh, and that includes, obviously, elderly, infirm, you know, people who are in situations in which this would ha present a greater risk to them. It includes our health professionals and our law enforcement and the like. Uh, but to have this kind of attitude, this flipping, you know, there's no plan. What are you talking about? Of course, there's a plan. Now, you can critique it. You could say, yeah. maybe we should do this or do that. But it's totally irresponsible for him to say that. It's, but the thing is, too, you need two doses within three weeks. It's got to be extremely well coordinated. You don't need people from who who are playing politics with this. And now that November third is over, I thought that would be over. How silly am I? Uh, I want to move <laughs> on real quick. John Brennan sat down with uh, Chris Wallace. He said something mm -hmm. I thought you might want to comment on, and that was when it comes to the Steele dossier. Uh, suddenly, John Brennan says it's it's really not a big deal. I really don't know. Uh, I really don't know uh, why everyone acts like it's so it's so important. Um, here is. Do you guys have the dossier cut? If, if they don't, I can just talk about it. No, no, <laughs> the, I, I know. Wait, well, here it is. Cut fifty-seven. The steel dossier was something that I never, you know, looked at from the standpoint of credibility because it wasn't something that the CIA had acquired. And so I think, you know, people point to the Steele dossier as this, you know, reason why the whole thing was a hoax. No, there was so much other evidence and intelligence to support those judgments. So I am very comfortable with how the intelligence community came out on that 2016 election. All right. Look, let's let's be clear about something, Brian. You're listening to a liar. Yeah. John Brennan is a liar. He lied to Congress. He lied to the American people. Under his leadership at the CIA, they spied on the elected representatives of the American people when it came to the torture memos that were being researched at the time. He's someone who should not be trusted in any way, shape, or form, and yet he continues to be trotted out there as this media figure in order to criticize President Trump, criticize Republicans and the like. What he's telling you there about the Steele dossier is just a flat-out lie. And honestly, in any just world, okay, 
John Brennan would be subject to the kind of investigation and the kind of legal consequences for his behavior that we saw directed at someone like General Michael Flynn. This is someone who has completely skated on all the terrible things that he's done to this country. It's awful the way that he continues to go out there and be trotted out to spout this type of lie to the American people without consequence. It, uh, it just infuriates me, Brian. He's on a book tour. You know how it is, Ben. It's okay. Go out there as an authority. <laughs> uh, the dossier. Go Meanwhile, out there and make money. Yeah, Andy McCabe has said the dossier played a vital role, so maybe they got to get their stories together. Uh, yeah, ben, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now you can go on with life the rest of the day without me. It's over with. I have I have a diaper to go change now, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Nice to know I came in. Uh, I beat that in terms of your things to do list. Uh, thanks so much. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Back with some calls. Then we're going to get into the legal aspects of the president's quest to win back these states. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's Brian Kilmeade. As business owners, we have done everything you wanted, and we will do whatever it takes to keep our people safe. We know COVID's out there, but... You're living in la-la land if you think the rest of us, the middle class and the lower middle class, can actually stay at home. We are going, you know, I have a single mom with a child who can't pay her rent. I've got another another per, new hire because we actually got busy in October with the, the patio. And it looked like things were going to turn around. Who is couch surfing because she no longer has an apartment and her unemployment has yeah. run out. It is ridiculous, and and as politicians or mayor of a city, it is your job to look at risk assessment. And that is Angela Martin. She owns the Pineapple Hill uh, Pineapple Grill and Saloon, and she does in Los Angeles. And she got shut down again, and it's going to destroy her. And she's sounding off, and she is fired up. Dan, listening on Freedom Nine Seventy in Oregon. Hey, Dan. Uh, yeah, up here in Portland, Oregon. We've had the virus here over 16 months, and only nine pe- 900 people have died, and it's all been care homes and everything else. And the immunity, is, it's, it's spread all over. Everybody has it and has had it, and that's why they're finding so many, and, and they're testing, and they're finding more. Plus, we've had football teams that have played in uh, lower high schools with no mask, no nothing, and they've never had anybody have the virus. But, uh, yeah, you're allowed to play football in New York. They didn't let them. Uh, they didn't even let uh, private schools play football, but they played other sports. Uh, you guys are playing through it, and that's what we need. We need the option to play through it, option to play sports. We know the kids uh, K through 12, the likelihood of them getting very ill is remote. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This was a pattern that was set by somebody in Washington because everybody else carried it out exactly in the same way. And they did it in the crooked cities. 
They didn't do it everywhere. They did it in, in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, in Detroit, in Milwaukee, in Atlanta. That's, they went to places where <laughs> there's a lot of corruption and the courts are not exactly the fairest. Let's put it that way. All right. That is Rudy Giuliani uh, single-handedly leading the fight to overturn this election for the president of the United States and sees a lot of uh, unsavory activity. Now he's find himself in the hospital because he sadly has the, the COVID-19. James Trustee, former federal prosecutor for the DOG, a partner at the uh, I- uh, IFRA uh, law firm. Uh, Jim, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. First off, you, Rudy Giuliani getting kind of frustrated. He knows uh, he has filed 55 lawsuits, and he's lost 38. Uh, just 38 have been dismissed by judges. More just haven't been looked at. He's trying to make some progress in Pennsylvania. could end up at the Supreme Court. Uh, roughly, what state, if any, gives should give Trump supporters their most hope? I think there's a few that are in play. And, you know, I'm reluctant to do the body count approach because a lot of these lawsuits— become moot because they can't move quickly enough. So it's not exactly like losing on the merits to lose in these kind of strange procedural places where we are. But uh, look, I think the first one to look to is Pennsylvania. That's always been an interesting issue. It's not even directly about fraud like you might have in Georgia. It's about constitutional state constitutional limits on the secretary of state when they changed all the rules with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's blessing. So that one, the big the big update there is that Justice Alito sped up the briefing schedule by a day, which is actually very important. It will be tomorrow and Wednesday will be the briefing. But that allows for Supreme Court action possibly before the state finalizes its electors. So that's a big moment in Pennsylvania, one definitely to watch. And I still think uh, Georgia, among others, is very much in play, too. When you look at the uh, video and kind of the half-hearted explanation of it from an official down in Georgia, I think that there's a, a pretty good case for fraud in Georgia as well. But it's amazing because you deal with Republicans. You know, it'd be different to get the normal hostility between parties and people, but it's, it's between Republicans, uh, Republicans, which throws you. You say, wait a second, are they just incompetent? Are they Trump haters? And they make it clear they voted for Trump with the Secretary of State uh, and others. Uh, they look at uh, what's going on there, and a governor, Brian Kemp, who's just been a train wreck, he went invisible because he barely beat Stacey Abrams. Then the president said, I recommend Doug Collins. He goes, no, I'm going to go with Kelly Loeffler, who, who just nice person, but just seems like the ultimate political rookie at a time in which he got a very consequential position. And then he seems to have disappeared on the president and not oversaw the signature of verification, which is key. That's just, a lot of this stuff had to be done before. Yeah, Brian, you know, this is it seems like the strategy in a lot of places, whether it's kind of a bureaucratic self-serving strategy or a democratic strategy is just to basically take advantage of the of the potential bad call. It's like a football team that runs up to the line of scrimmage and you're yelling, hurry up and hike it so the replay booth can't kick in. Well, that's kind of where we are with all these cases. The, The judicial system is the replay booth and a whole bunch of voices are just saying, hurry up and snap it so we don't really get a clean look at it. So the uh, Georgia lieutenant governor uh, is, is getting pushed to call a special session to redo uh, this old verification, this uh, signature verification situation that they have here now. Here's what he said. Cut 23. Calling the General Assembly back in uh, at this point would, would almost, you know, uh, be along the lines of, of a solution trying to find a problem. And uh, we're certainly not going to move the goalpost at this point in the election. And so it does look like he's going to do it. I'm not sure the governor's uh, going to get behind it. Your thoughts on that? 
Well, it's nice that he used the football analogy too. But look, I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, this is a collective effort in some quarters, sometimes state officials who are kind of the signatories on these uh, local elections and sometimes just political figures that are essentially saying, let's move on. There's nothing to see. And, and the reality is, if you look at the affidavits, if you look at some of the litigation across the country, it's not that it's necessarily perfect or that it's even going to end up being ultimately provable, but it's worth a hard look. And so if you've got state officials saying we changed the rules at the last minute, but we don't want to revisit it, or we looked at a video that sure looks like fraud, but uh, we're going to accept the explanation of the participants over the general circumstances. I mean, all of that kind of cries out for somebody to give it a hard look. And of course, a hard look in a criminal case a year from now doesn't change the election. So it's got to be the civil litigation that's uh, taking place across the country. And it's got to be essentially either courageous legislatures or state figures or honest judges that look at it hard and think there's something there. Uh, Here is what Rudy Giuliani said, uh, the issues with various ballots. He says, keep an eye on Wisconsin, cuts 53. You said you found serious issues with processing of ballots, absentee ballots in Wisconsin. Oh, oh, of course, yeah. I mean, what you you had in Wisconsin is the same thing that you had every place else, except they have this additional law where you have to have an application. They uh, excluded Republican poll watchers from watching uh, absentee ballots being counted. Uh, and mail-in ballots being counted. They exclude Republican poll watchers from the polls. Uh, they, um, they engage in backdating, in backdating ballots. Uh, several witnesses testified to how they were trained how to backdate ballots. Uh, they, they registered people who weren't registered under different names. Each one of them has, in one degree or another, almost the same pattern of activity, one a little bit more than others. So what kind of case is he laying out there? Well, look, the Wisconsin case is one you and I talked about, I think, a week or two ago, Brian. And that's, to me, it's a very kind of binary case in a good way for the plaintiff. And that's just to say, basically, we have a state, a state law that officially says you can't send out ballots to unsolicited people. In other words, it's only going to be an absentee ballot if you've requested it instead of a universal dump. And let me that's just say, huge, Jim, just say, that happened in nine states. Right. But, I mean, again, it may or may not tilt the scales, but it certainly could tilt the scales in Wisconsin. If you ended up tossing all of the absentee ballots that were in violation of that, that were all unsolicited, um, that's apparently a number that's well over the margin of victory for Biden at the moment. So to me, that's not one where you have to go and convince a court that your side of the fraud story is absolute. You're looking at it in a much more kind of linear, uh, you know, legal way rather than relying on facts that are going to be challenged. So Again, I think that's a big one. It's a little bit like the Pennsylvania case with Congressman Kelly, which is basically just talking about legal authority, whereas some of these other cases are all about proving those individual moments of fraud, either backdating ballots or creating false ballots. There's a lot of stories and a lot of fairly credible evidence of that. But I think for speed and for court comfort, it's the constitutional challenges that probably have the the greatest chance of moving quickly. All right. So we'll see what happens. Do you blame the president for fighting this out? No, I mean, look, you know, if you if you say it's okay for him to fight, then suddenly you're in the Hitler camp if you, uh, you know, but I would just say, look, I don't like litigation associated with elections, period. I wasn't a huge fan of what was going on in Florida in 2000. 
But when you have evidence of fraud, when you have changing rules at the last minute or even after the last minute, I think it's worth having the courts involved. So uh, it's his right, and I think it makes sense. Jim, how, the question is, how uh, dexterous are you? Are you willing to? Are you nimble enough to change direction right now with a different topic? Um, no. I'm just kidding. Sure. Yeah, what okay. do you want to talk about? <laughs> John Brennan was on over the weekend. He's trying to sell a book. He said some things I think needs to be challenged with reality. Cut 59, on spying on the Trump campaign. Looking back at 2016, were there some mistakes made in terms of the FISA applications, other types of things? Yes, apparently there were. But that doesn't mean that there was criminal intent. And there was no spying on Donald Trump's campaign. And it's very clear from Robert Mueller's investigation that there were a lot of activities that I think were very unprincipled, unethical. And it'll be up to individuals in the future to determine whether or not there was any criminal activity that took place during that time. Really think there was no spying on the campaign? Haven't we already established that? Yeah, we have. I mean, look, John Brennan has proven himself to be uh, quite comfortable with uh, dishonesty. I mean, he's kind of the Adam Schiff of the CIA. And look, to, to sit there and use this euphemism, were there mistakes made? When you literally have FBI agents manufacturing evidence, lying, doing ambush interviews, avoiding the attorney general. I mean, the list of things that the FBI did to go after people like Michael Flynn, for instance, is outrageous. So if you're going to talk about unprincipled, possibly criminal behavior, you have to look at what John Durham's going to look at, which is the behavior of law enforcement and political and intelligence figures back around 2016, not mm -hmm. Trump making a phone call or Michael Flynn uh, being ambushed interviewed. It's time to move on to talk about how bad the FBI conduct was at the top reaches of the FBI. So I don't want to go back too much to 2016, but it's going to come up again. And I think if you haven't got to the bottom of something, I think it's only logical to hope that Durham's able to continue with his uh, with his uh, research. I don't know. By the time it comes out, it looks like it's going to go past this administration if there is a change in administration. But Brenda was asked about the Steele dossier that Andy McCabe said played a big role, that BuzzFeed published, that, that tilted public sentiment against the president to a degree until it could be f thoroughly debunked. Listen to this. How he described the dossier, cut 57. The Steele dossier was something that I never you know, looked at from the standpoint of credibility because it wasn't something that the CIA had acquired. And so I think, you know, people point to the Steele dossier as this, you know, reason why the whole thing was a hoax. No, there was so much other evidence and intelligence to support those judgments. So I am very comfortable with how the intelligence community came out on that 2016 election. So he's the one that's comfortable. <laughs> So now the Steele dossier doesn't matter? Did he tell the FBI that? Yeah, look, I mean, the reality is you've had a whole bunch of officials that have been asked this question about the Steele dossier. Essentially, if you knew how false it is, would you have still signed off on the FISA applications? And every one of them, including uh, the chief narcissist, Jim Comey, have all said, no, I wouldn't have gone along with it if I knew it was false. So, you know, Brennan may not have his fingerprints all over this thing yet, but he is certainly scurrying for cover and acting as if the intelligence community did nothing wrong when uh, it was the intelligence community that actually communicated with the FBI about some of the problems with the subsource and source in that dossier. So, 
there's a lot to uncover there. There's a lot more than just unprincipled ends justifies the means behavior. There's, I think, probably criminal behavior to look at. And, and again, hopefully that's what John Durham's going to spend some time looking at. Jim, now. I don't want to hurt your business and living, but if you look back in time and how these administration have been distracted by both parties, for example, when Clinton, I know it was his, his behavior, but when they had the election, when they had the uh, Monica Lewinsky dress mess, at the same time, al-Qaeda was metastasizing. They were potting and playing against us, blowing up our embassy. There was a, a chance to get bin Laden. The president was hesitant because he thought it would be a wagging-the-dog scenario. We know about Karl Rove and the press and, and the push on Scooter Libby and everything like that and how it distracted on those words in the State of the Union address and how it distracted from uh, the Bush administration and how it hurt the country and the impeachment that took place while the coronavirus was taking root here. And now we have the whole Russian investigation, the Mueller probe that disabled almost the first two years of the Trump campaign. Do we have to think twice before we go to, to get a new threshold to have these comprehensive investigations that seem so politically motivated? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. I mean, look, we always have to think twice about, you know, high moment political corruption type investigations. And we should. Right. We shouldn't just automatically assume that someone is guilty. It's always a question of whether it's a real crisis or a manufactured crisis. And it looks very convincingly at this point that 2016 was a manufactured crisis where law enforcement and perhaps political figures and, and uh, intelligence community members had decided where they wanted this election to go. And they wanted to have access to information from that election as well as the immediate aftermath. And so they manipulated the tools of government to get what they wanted. That's worthy of a look. Maybe it distracts from the next administration, but that's worthwhile for us if we're going to survive as a republic to look into the weaponization mm -hmm. of government for political differences. So, yeah. again, I, I'm with you. There's a lot of abuse or potential abuse of investigations and concerns of whether scandals are are uh, affecting our ability to maintain a, a government. But this is one that's worthy of a look, and I think Durham will give it a hard look. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, in the future, I just want a real – I want it to be real. Before we have a, a Watergate-type situation again, can we probably think – because both parties are guilty of it. I'm so upset Barack Obama won, I'm going to find something on him. I'm so upset that Bill Clinton won, I'm going to find something on him. I cannot believe Donald Trump won, I'm going to find something on him. And I hope the Republicans start this time, as disappointed they are that Joe Biden won. I hope they just keep their powder dry and see if there's a real scandal or not, because it's so debilitating and divisive for the country. But I know it's good for lawyers. So I know you're in a tough spot. <laughs> so I'm not and, and lawyer and, and, and legal experts that come on shows. So I don't want you to hurt your industry. Uh, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll still have some business and even some stuff to give opinions on, no matter what kind of water gates we have or don't have. So, you know, maybe it'll be talking about coronavirus shutdowns or, yeah. you know, d dog bites man stories. But I, I think I can keep busy. So don't worry about me too much. And, and I hear you. It's not good for the republic to constantly have scandals. But, you know, sometimes there's fire beneath the smoke and we have to look at it. And if you hear anything on me, just know it's not true. Okay, Jim. Uh, it's a little late for that. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> All right, Jim Trusty, thanks so much. All right, uh, thanks, man. See you. Back in a moment with your calls. Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.
Don't go anywhere. Coming to He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Uh, that, of course, is uh, 40, how many? 79 years ago, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. This is the first time I understand that there has not been a survivor from Pearl Harbor there to mark that moment in American history. Uh, the attack claimed the lives of 2,334 servicemen and women and wounded another 1,143. And we were into World War II. Germany would declare war on us right after. The Germans did not want Japan to do that. They said, basically, uh, the Axis powers, they got to stick together. But what? why were you doing that? But uh, that's the story. Yeah, and the reason um, there's no veteran there is because of the pandemic. Okay, good. Yeah. It's not that they weren't alive. Because I was in Hawaii once, and there were two veterans in their 90s doing a book signing there. And it wasn't a, it was an anniversary or day, but it's just pretty amazing. Uh, let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Bob Woodward's next book uh, and his new co-author. Yes, Bob Woodward called President Trump to warn him about that Rage would be a tough book. I replied on 60 Minutes, well, I didn't get you get you on this book. Maybe I'll get you on the next one. He'll get a chance sooner than later. Bob Woodward and Bob, uh, Robert Costa, both in the Washington Post, are teaming up to write a book on the final days of the Trump presidency. It'll be Woodward's 21st book. I hope they're smart enough not to cooperate. Yeah, it's also going to cover um, the first phase of Biden's presidency. Okay, good. Uh, no title or publication date. Uh, Bob Barnett represented, uh, will represent them both. Woodward will remain in the associate editor of the Post, and Costa will remain a national political reporter on leave. So, I mean, look, it's, you know it's full of uh, uh, stuff because, you know, this has been an explosive time. Next, Evander Holyfield says his team has been in contact with Mike Tyson's team, and he strongly believes they're very close to inking a deal for a third fight. I'm confident. I'm a confident person, Evander says. I think it's going to happen. But Evander says there's been movement, and it's heading that way. Tyson revealed his team has been in touch with the Holyfield camp, but they weren't able to make a deal. You know, Evander's 58, Tyson's 54. Uh, to me, Tyson should not fight Holyfield. Because he can't win. Holyfield's too big, and the whole headbutting thing, it's just, just going to bring up bad moments. Tyson wants to turn the page. That's not the way to turn the page. It's amazing we're having this conversation about two men in their I 50s. Know. I know. And remember, Foreman said three fights he should fight for the title. I love Holyfield. I want him to get money. Just don't fight Tyson. That's all I ask. And not at 58. Right. But he is in great shape. Very similar body to Mike. 100%. You're his body double. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York, where I'm virtually alone outside uh, uh, a few coveted staff members. They'll be nameless because they don't want to get in trouble for coming to work. And uh, also, we, I have to say, too, uh, heard around the country, heard around the world. So we have a lot to discuss today. Jason Chaffetz has been woken from his Utah mansion. He is going to be joining us shortly. And Bill Crane, if you want to know what's going on in Georgia from the Senate side uh, to the recount side to the, trying to forget, uh, make heads or tails out of what the president's saying and all the cases he's bringing uh, and the rivalry now between the governor, the president, the secretary of state and the president uh, on down, as well as the speech on Saturday and the debate on Sunday, 
Bill Crane's the guy. So he's going to be joining us shortly. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Giuliani has made very serious accusations. The question is, which institution is designed constitutionally to look into it? Is it the state legislature? Is it the courts? Is the clock running in such a way that there won't be time to look into this? Alan Dershowitz talking about the latest on the president's fight to overturn 2020 as his lead attorney, Rudy Giuliani, checks into a hospital over the coronavirus. The cases, the states, and the stakes all coming your way. Number two. Mayor Garcetti has approved this being set up for a movie company. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face. And I 100% agree. Angela Martin, who owns this great uh, bar and grill in the middle of her parking lot, they're doing a movie. And they set up a huge outdoor tent to feed the cast. COVID cases surge as vaccine approval could be four days away. This is insane. Lockdowns are taking place, causing rage from, uh, rage from coast to coast. Uh, an aid package is coming, but they have to stop shutting down these businesses today. Number one. My opponent, radical liberal Raphael Warnock, has called police officers gangsters, thugs, bullies, and a threat to our children. My opponent is going to work really hard trying to push a narrative about me. I actually brought together the law enforcement officers here in this city. When Georgia runoff, Kelly Leffler, Raphael Warnock debate and expose each other's flaws and underline what we all knew. It's up to the president and his ability to bring Republicans together to win or lose this. And joining us now is a guy that knows all about uh, politics and what's at stake, Jason Chavis, a Fox News contributor, former chairman of the House Oversight uh, Committee, author of Power Grab. Uh, Jason, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. Hey, Jason, I know things are getting bad in Utah, too. So nobody, they say every state except Hawaii has increasing cases. We understand the challenge. But didn't we already understand that lockdowns don't work? Listen to what Admiral Gerard just said to Sandra Smith. Uh, oh, we don't have it yet? Okay, I thought we had it. Uh, he just said to Sandra Smith, there's no science behind the shutdowns of bars and restaurants. And the bars and restaurants in California, they're only responsible for 3% of the spread. But yet they're destroying all these businesses. What's it like by you? Well, look, they, they don't really, really know where exactly somebody got. Of course, you want to have a little bit of, of, of social distancing. you got to be smart. you got to vigorously wash your hands. But... There is a degree of personal responsibility, and out west, I think we understand that you have to take these facts into your own hands and make your own decisions and be smart about it. But what's driving America crazy is the hypocrisy. It's the double standards. It's the fact that you go out and see these left-wing politicians preaching one thing, dictating to people that they have to do things, and then you have people like Governor Newsom going out and have a party in Napa Valley with all his buddies and no mask. But he apologized. <laughs> yeah, that that's – and I'm sure it was the only time that it happened, Brian. I mean, from coast to coast, we've seen the hypocrisy. Look at the mayor – of Denver, Colorado, stay home. Don't go anywhere. Meanwhile, he gets on a plane and goes fly, to fly off. I mean, and that's not the only instance. But the common denominator here, I'm sorry, but it is just the reality. These people are Democrats, and they, they it's, that's disaster liberalism. That's how they act. See, look, uh, we do know that the WHO says we got to be smart. We know about the basic things, but I have not learned anything new in nine months. 
We, except for in the beginning, they told us not to wear a mask. It gives us a false sense of protection. And now they tell us to wear a mask. I'll say, I'll buy it. You learned. I would love for them to admit they were, had made a mistake early. Outside the Surgeon General, nobody else admitted it. Nobody else admitted that in February they told us it was not going to be a problem here. But we have him on with John Castamatidi's uh, roundtable show, Anthony Fauci on down. Okay, but we understand you, you don't want to admit it. But you were wrong. And now we know the thing. But I haven't learned anything new since, so we're holding on tight for the vaccine. But I don't make Jason Chaffetz go to a gym. I can't make Jason Chaffetz go to a restaurant. But it turns out you can make your own decision. And then people will say, well, during the pandemic, I got no business. I had to shut down. During the pandemic, I opened up outdoor. I, uh, I emphasized takeout, and I worked. But I didn't deny people the opportunity that's what they're doing. And guess who gets hurt, Jason? The working class and the middle class, not the upper class with their home gyms and their nannies and butlers. Yeah, that's exactly right. They can uh, they can blow right through this uh, when they talk about, hey, let's get rid of and defund the police. Well, guess what? The upper end, they can go out and hire their own security and make sure they have their own locks. And it's the lower end communities. And it's the same thing with COVID. It's these businesses that are trying that that tape you played is probably one of the most egregious examples I've seen where that woman has her own business next door to what's being approved for a movie. And, you know, it's because they got buddies at the movies to make things happen. And yet she offers the same product. I feel for those little businesses that are near Walmarts and Costco's and and other big box retailers. But why can't the little business also be able to do this and employ some social distancing and some smart measures like putting out hand sanitizer? I would think uh, I would think there's got to be some pushback. And I just applaud the Staten Islands, the gym in New Jersey. I I, I implore the Los Angeles uh, restaurant. You got to fight. You got to fight. But unfortunately, the Governor Cuomo's and the Gavin Newsom's, they take retribution out. And now we have a sheriff who joined us this morning from California who said, I refuse to enforce this. These people can stay open in my county because they have no credibility. They had one move in February. They got the same move in November and the same move that gets worse in December. As much as I'm worried about the hospitals overflowing, I'll tell you this. You know what I'm doing if I'm Governor Newsom? I enforce mitigation. I implore it. I push it. I talk to restaurant associations about how to do it responsibly because I want the tax revenue selfishly to keep my services going and to pay my cops and firefighters. And then I ask the president, can you bring the ship back? Can you bring the ship back to New York? Can you give it back to California or can you bring it to Texas? I need the beds because I can't shut down my economy again. That's somebody that doesn't oh, just doesn't take the easy way out. Yeah, no, that would require actually thinking and working with people on both sides of the aisle. I, Dr. Nicole Sapphire has been on a lot of shows. I really like and trust her. She talks about not just dealing with COVID, but all the other things, Brian, from the alcoholism and the mental health aspects and kids in schools. And there's so many other implications by just shutting everything down, which is obviously not working because it's devastating people's income. It's devastating their lives. They're devastating on the mental health side of the equation. And you, to your earlier point, where's the science to say, hey, this is actually going to solve it? Think about the airlines. They keep telling us that one of the safest places to be is on an airplane because of the air circulation and it kills the virus. And I believe that. But then they say don't travel. So I, I don't know. I did. If I, I've been on probably six planes in six months, which is almost nothing for you and I. You know, you're traveling all the time, usually between speeches and coming back and forth to New York. Uh, with me, 
I probably uh, six or seven times, you know, all for all work related. I've had no problem. And the and the and you know what the the flight attendants can't wait to work. The pilots can't wait to fly. Everything is so clean and restrictive. You should have no problem flying. And that's what Jer, uh, uh, Secretary Azar said. It's become the safest place. But let's not let's not emphasize that. It's too positive. So let's talk about the COVID stimulus plan, plan or say aid package. We got bipartisan buy-in forcing, I think, leadership to act. I want you to hear Joe Manchin, Cut 39. Well, it's a deal that must come together. We don't have a choice now. It's one of those things that has to be done, and I'll tell you the reason why. This is a, I want people to understand, this is a COVID emergency relief. Started out as a relief framework. You've seen the framework. <clears throat> How we came to $908 billion in all the different categories. And what we did as a group, we came together and said, listen, we have got to do something. Are you worried that you're probably... Uh, doing less than you should be doing? Chuck, this is an emergency relief package only till April 1, the first quarter, to get through the first quarter. Every indication says more money is needed. We see that. This gets us through, basically, the lifelines that people need and the small businesses that can survive and not go under. Unemployment checks that people are going to be losing. Senator Cassidy, among the Republican leadership that's been working on this on Zoom calls uh, uh, through the weekend, through Thanksgiving, could this be the first time, Congressman, in a long time that I remember something getting done from the bottom up, not leadership down? Well, I hope so. And it's there's one common factor here, and that is the elections over. Nancy Pelosi could have easily had this done a good four months ago, and people would be experiencing that relief now. But she held it up, and she did so because of the election. Um, you know, Bill Cassidy is a great senator. I served with him in the House. He's also a doctor, and so he, you know, he's got some he's got some insight that maybe the rest of the body doesn't have. I just hope I just hope they don't load it up with things that have absolutely nothing to do with COVID relief and small business relief. That's what bogged down a lot of these things in the past. When Nancy Pelosi, I think she originally asked for four trillion, and it was just larded up with all this garbage to bail out states and take care of other problems and do things on immigration, things that had nothing to do with COVID. So I want to bring you to uh, the president's fight in Georgia in particular uh, for the Senate races. Right now, I have a pretty good uh, source that says the arguments between the president, the secretary of state and the governor, as well as these senators, uh, some that don't show up for debates and others that obviously looked like they were just starting debating. Uh, Secretary Leffler, you might not feel the same way. I thought she was kind of robotic yesterday. Um, they they are getting very worried about the Republicans holding these seats. Are you? Well, of course. I mean, the whole balance of the Senate is there. The, the Republicans have 50 seats in the Senate already, but they need 51. And so, yeah, you got to pull off one, if not two. Uh, I think it has traditionally been a Republican state. That's why you have two Republican senators and a Republican governor and People just can't get fed up and throw up their hands and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to participate in this. This vote, every vote counts, and that's why I think the message to making sure that people get out and actually vote has got to resonate. If it does, then Republicans, I think, will do quite well. Do you th- how does the president get, get along with Brian Kemp when he feels like Brian Kemp is letting him down, when he feels like the secretary of state is out to get him? Well, look, the president didn't want – he wanted Doug Collins to be uh, the senator, not to Kelly. He would have been so much better. So, yeah, and so you know, he, he pushed for that. He didn't get for that, but the governor gets to make that selection. The, gov- 
Donald Trump endorsed uh, uh, Governor Kemp. Um, he said since that he regrets it. But at the end of the day, you've got a choice, folks. You can either have these radical liberals representing and give Chuck Schumer the gavel and the uh, make sure that he's in charge, or you can make sure that there's balance in government. And that's where I think Georgia is going to look at this. They're going to look at Chuck Schumer and say, we're really going to let Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden control this country? That's just a bridge too far. Well, okay. Uh, you're not talking to me. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's the undecided voters that the president lost by 10,000 votes as of now. So he's got to make sure that doesn't happen again. If the president wants to create momentum for 2024, he wins these two races, make sure the House goes to Republican. Maybe he can convince you to come back, uh, goes Republican, get a Republican speaker in there, and he'll be teed up for 2024. This could be the beginning of a winning streak. He did talk about, there is talk, Axios is reporting, not denied that we know of, that the president is talking about having a rally in Florida the same day of the inauguration and not showing up. Would you encourage or discourage that? Hey, look, Donald Trump said he, he, he does his things his own way. And if he wants to get out there and have that as an American, he can go for it. And I, I think he would have incredible record high crowds. Um, I don't know what Joe Biden's going to do with the inauguration. Does he even hold it? Are, are, how many hundreds of people are going to show up to see Joe Biden sworn in? Um, and I think he, Joe Biden might even say, hey, with COVID, we're not going to have an inauguration. We're just going to have a a few people, uh, you know, standing in circles while I get sworn in. But no, they, they, Trump, they're talking he, about making it look like the DNC. They, they're talking to make it look like the DNC, basically all uh, virtual, some maybe people distance in the background, like President Bush, Clinton, Hillary. Uh, I imagine, uh, you know, obviously uh, President Obama. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Uh, everything's different. There's no, no, there's no tradition that's not going to be challenged. Uh, Jason, did I wear you out? Are you going to get need a nap after this? No, I love it, man. Let's go. Come on. You, I, you're one of the hardest working guys out there. I don't know how you do Fox and Friends and then come up and do three hours of radio. It's amazing. See, the thing is, I don't have I to make any six sense. Minutes. What did you say? I could do six minutes. If you do six hours, I do six minutes. All right, good. Because I know you've had you've had foot surgery. You're not the same person you were. So I don't know if I'm dealing with damaged goods. And I'm going to take a nap. Okay, good. Jason Chaffetz, thanks so much. Uh, when we come back, I'll open up the phones, one 408 Then Bill Crane, uh, he's Senior Communications Strategist and Chief Political Analyst and Commentator for WSB and WSB Radio and TV in Atlanta. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Information you want, truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I think his actions are extraordinarily disturbing. I think they're disgusting. I think uh, it's just there's no excuse for someone doing something that might threaten the life of a law enforcement officer. And that's what he did. Uh, Our sheriff's uh, deputy's life was in danger because of what this guy did. And it's absolutely unacceptable. And he should pay very, very serious consequences for what he did. Mayor de Blasio talking about an incident that had a car hit a deputy. Uh, first, we said two broken legs. We just are listening to the bar owner of Max, uh, the lawyer for the bar owner at Max's, a bar that refused to close because it's they, they were closed stupidly. Uh, when you have uh, bars open two, minute, uh, uh, two, uh, two blocks away, 
and you shut this one down. He was going to fight for it, and there was an incident that happened on Saturday. Here's their explanation about what happened. De Blasio and now Cuomo have told the people of Staten Island, New York City, and the country that if you speak up to the emperor, you get crushed. In the last week, just to give you a timeline, Lou Gelamino, one of the finest criminal defense attorneys around, and Mark Fonte, um, who represent Dan and Mac, Mac's pub, Lou was served with, Lou was charged with a misdemeanor for trying to be a lawyer. Our political leaders came here to try to stand up for the guys and the restaurants and the movement, and Andrew Lanza was nearly handcuffed in front of Max pub for trying to stand with the people. <clears throat> the other night we found out that it was a political ambush. More details will come your way on what's happened, but it's a tale of two cities. Walmart just announced they're paying $700 million in bonuses, and Staten Island restaurant owners are getting arrested two times in a week for trying to make 100 bucks. The ignorance is so high that on national television, they find it funny that small business owners are trying to feed their families while the millionaires sit in their perch. No, no kidding. That's Staten Island on the 3,000 miles away. Very similar situation, less of a New York accent uh, out in the West Coast. They just want to earn a living, and they've had it. They used to listen. They don't anymore because these, these politicians don't have any credibility because they don't go by their own rules. That adds up to it. Plus, uh, WHO and other experts say it's not helping. You're just hurting. Meanwhile, Dr. Fauci joins Governor Cuomo in New York, I imagine, to talk about how great a governor he is and maybe publicize his book a little bit more. Uh, we'll see about that. Maybe it's about the wisdom of shutting down in a, a judicious way instead of an unequal way. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I'm really not focused on it. Um, And I think that too often the politics in Washington has been about the politicians. Uh, I'm a pastor. And so when I think about these issues, I think about the people that I've had to stand with uh, in the critical care units uh, while they're loved. Okay, that's one way not to answer a question. I'm not thinking about it. Really? Is that an option? I don't know. What's my fiscal policy? I don't really care about court packing, which has everything to do with the future of justice in America and history. I don't really think about it. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to know. Uh, joining us now in one of the most extraordinary non-answers in the history of politics, I believe, Bill Crane, senior communication strategist and chief political analyst and commentator for WSB Radio and TV uh, over in Atlanta. Bill, welcome back. Good to be here, Brian. Bill, I, I couldn't believe how many non-answers. It wasn't just him, but just how many non-answers we got last night. Should I have not been surprised? Well, I'm getting to a point, and I've been doing this about as long as you have, of wondering, are these debates providing any value to the voters? Because neither candidate really bothered with the questions last night. There were times they would touch on them, but mostly um, Senator Leffler repeated phrases over and over again, sometimes which had no relation to the question, and some of the more pressing questions didn't get answered, or sometimes it was the Reverend Raphael Warnock kind of trying to drop into biblical verse to not answer another question. So I don't know that there was a lot of information for the voters who are still undecided to discern from, but I will also have to acknowledge, uh, given that Senator Lefter was appointed a year ago yesterday, 
this was really her debut opportunity to a statewide audience of millions of Georgians and potential voters who don't know her. And uh, it was not her best night. Uh, yeah, you use robotic memorize, uh, memorize phrases. I don't know uh, how it's been received so far, but these con- it's not as if we're having trouble discerning where they stand, where there's so much alike, you can't really, it doesn't really matter who wins. My goodness, this isn't Joe Manchin against Kelly Loeffler. This is, this is a guy who says Reverend Wright was, uh, Reverend Wright was my mentor, who said we basically have to apologize, uh, Americans have to apologize for their uh, 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 whiteness, who have said you had to make a choice between serving religion and serving in the military. I'm paraphrasing and I, and I would have, And I would have jumped. No, you're correct on what he said from the pulpit and citing Matthew 25. But if I were Senator Leffler's preppers or herself, I would have said back, if you cannot serve two masters, Reverend, how can you be the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church and a politician and a later U.S. senator who will have to vote on things like the federal death penalty or further restrictions or removal of further restrictions on abortion or even a vote – to go to war. How can you be a pastor? Because he's not planning to leave the pulpit and a United States senator. But she didn't. And there were just so many missed opportunities, I thought, last night. She's got a sterling business track record, which we heard virtually nothing of. She could talk about she has one of the few profitable WNBA franchises, and not just the team, but virtually the, the almost all of the managers and the coaches of that franchise are African-American females, and you wouldn't know that watching the last night's debate. We know they had a problem with her condemnation of Black Lives Matter, not the movement, but the, but the actual uh, organization, and that was brought up, uh, and we know the WNB team didn't like it. And that was the only thing you heard about that last night was kind of trying to gin up the issue of the dispute with she and some of her players about not allowing Black Lives Banner signs and flagged could be hung inside the stadium. And I, on an earlier conversation on air that she did with that, she said, I believe all lives matter and certainly black lives matter, but the organization black lives matter is radical and I cannot and will not support that. And I own this team. And as long as I'm paying the bill, this isn't going to be what we're going to hang. And that's again, that's, that's an answer. Uh, absolutely. That is an answer. So how's it being played in the uh, places like the Atlanta journal, journal constitution and WSB and things like that? Like you they said, are, that they, they are speaking to it more as you did. That neither candidate answers questions, and they took some pretty harsh shots at each other. And and I think if you were listening to it on the radio and it played on WSB and you weren't watching it, uh, it probably looked or sounded, excuse me, more like an even-handed debate with neither one of them having huge gaffes, but neither one of them answering questions. If you saw it on television, I'm just going to repeat. You know, you do call on radio. I was driving home from commenting on it on TV last night, and this caller called in. Deep Southern accent, native Georgian said, I'm going to vote for, but what I saw was a two by four with eyelashes. Um, <laughs> and she is in person. She is not that stiff. And in person, she doesn't come off robotic. And in person, I know for many friends of hers, she's intellectual. She's charming. She's a brilliant businesswoman. She's empathetic. You didn't see any of that in last night's debate. Yeah, maybe she was overcoached. And, you know, the first I think she was overcoached. If I, you, you, yeah. you and I both known candidates who allow that self that, that to happen. Whoever did her prep should be fired. Absolutely. So John Ossoff, let's, li- let's listen to some highlights from his debate. Cut 21. If the senator were not too much of a coward to debate in public, and he's not here because he's afraid he may incriminate himself, this is why David Perdue is not here today. He can't defend the indefensible. David Perdue's decision, he won by about, what, 88,000 votes, decision not to show up last night. How does that look? Uh, 
if it was just a, a normal debate and we're kind of in a normal election, I don't think it would have even registered and nobody would be talking about it much. But because of this historic nature of two Senate runoffs and what hangs in the balance and a rather interesting performance by the president in Valdosta the night before involving the senators both, I would have surprised John Ossoff and shown up at the last minute. That's that's what I would have advised, and that's what I would have done because even though I don't think Ossoff has much reach beyond Metro Atlanta, he is well-presenting, somewhat glib, and he had an hour to take shots that were not responding. I mean the reporters didn't even press him on some of the facts that he, as he presented them in his questions and answers, and you know, basically he got an hour of free time. So Senator Purdue was on the front page of the New York Times, I think, on Saturday, making 2,638 or uh, trades, most trades by far of anyone. And he was investigated and he was exonerated, as was uh, Senator uh, Leffler. So my question is, why don't they talk about how they were exonerated? I know they don't want to talk about it. There's not many positives. They don't want to talk about it at all. They talk about it in their ads. But again, what I would and, and I have reached out to all four of the campaigns for different reasons, and I will say that Democrats actually return the phone calls. But the senator's TV ads, David Perdue has one very effective one where he talks directly into the camera what might happen and what's at stake. And he says, higher taxes, more regulations, loss of jobs, defunding our military, defunding our police. If this is what you want, vote for the other guy. And it's a very effective ad. All the rest of his ads and most of Ms. Loeffler's ads that aren't attacking the opponent, which those work, um, start out by essentially saying I'm not guilty of securities fraud. And I just think it, it sounds defensive. I am you know, would love to be telling you, Brian, in this still red state that has a metropolitan area that's gone blue, that these Senate reaches are locks for the GOP. But I'd say they're both close, and if you're asking me today based on the internal polling and news outlet polling, I'd say Purdue ekes it out, and I'm, I'm not sure Ms. Loeffler gets reelected. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I got to know Doug Collins a little bit, and he is extremely bright. He's extremely experienced. He would have t- he would have wiped the floor with the Reverend. So it's just amazing that what Georgia promised and what Governor Kemp did it defied the president. And and the senator seems like a lovely person. I interviewed a couple of times on TV. That's fine, but you just go with your best person. She knows that she's in sports, basketball player herself. You got to go with your best starting lineup. And Governor Kemp had no interest in that, which is. Uh, uh, stunning to me. So we have these two. Uh, we have these two playing out. And we got some numbers in about who's raising how much money, and it's pretty close on one side. Um, it is fundraising for as of December 26. Total raised Ossoff 32 million. Purdue 21 million. On the fundraising side, up to December 6, total raised for Warnock 27, Leffler 28. Total spent. Warnock spent 16. Leffler 22. Have you seen her presence? She's had $22 million worth of presents? I don't know that she's got the smartest media buyer. You're actually seeing more of the 527 ads which support her and challenge Mr. Warnock than you are from her campaign. She may have a late-stage buy. That wouldn't be unusual for a runoff because literally being the week after Christmas, she may have not posted all of her buy yet. There's $300 million that's already been between those two races. There's also a statewide race for Public Service Commission, and people yawn. But Georgia's the only state that's building nuclear. And it's a five-person public service commission with a three-person majority, and Bubba McDonald has been a constant supporter of getting that project done. His opponent is constantly clear that he's opposed. There's already somewhere on the order of $22 billion in that project, and federal guaranteed loan reserves are in it as well. If that PSC race goes the other way, Georgia's just going to have a very different 2021 and, and forward if those races can't be turned around.
So when the president comes, uh, so we'll see where this goes. Right now, you think that the Democrats seem more organized and more motivated? They're more energized. And the Republicans, because of the ongoing contest in the presidential campaign, because of the accusations flying back and forth, because of the you know, attacks on Governor Kemp by the president and the secretary of state, um, it's just a difficult time to envision the party unifying and getting their crap together. Early voting starts a week from today. So do you, how do you – the president was supposed to come out and make a unifying speech. I saw some uh, – I, I didn't see the whole speech, but I heard some cuts. That he, you know, he clearly is saying what's at stake. He made that mention. You don't think he did it enough? He didn't start there, and he didn't end there. He did talk about actually encourage people to vote early and vote absentee, which, of course, is a shift in messaging. He talked about what's at stake in the Senate, but the most – the majority of the time was – his laundry list of, you know, kind of the festivist poll of grievances about the election, Georgia in particular, the governor. And then he did not say, which some were expecting him to, that Kelly Loeffler and um, Senator Perdue have not done enough to kind of use their muscle to get either the legislatures in the states to try to flip the, uh, the uh, electors, which the governor and lieutenant governor and speaker issued a press release last night that the Electoral College meets a week from today on the 14th of December – they don't have enough time to call a special session, but even if they did, that would be, in their minds and the, and the attorney general of Georgia's minds, unconstitutional to change in the middle of an election, prevailing election law. Uh, Bill Crane is here. Uh, he's, uh, he's the man to go to if you want to find out what's going to be happening in Georgia, and we all do want to find out and have an idea what's happening because there's plenty of times to correct uh, because you have till January 5th. So I want you to hear what the lieutenant governor said as advice to Trump supporters. Cut 63. You know, if I had a chance to, to spend five minutes with every single person in Georgia that, that doubted the election results, I, I think I'd, I'd be able to win their hearts over, show them the facts and figures, separate fact from fiction. But uh, certainly I don't have that opportunity. And so, yeah, you know, on, on January 20th, Joe Biden's going to be sworn in as the 46th president. So he believes that the president should stop fighting and that he lost. Uh, others say this whole the signature verification is the problem. So the secretary of state was asked about it, and he said, yeah, I, I want to address that. He goes, if you filled out a paper application, it came from a signature, we matched it. And then we went ahead. When you send in your ballot, we matched it again. I'm the first secretary to ever stand up uh, online to an online portal for absentee ballot applications, which connects us with a photo ID. And so we've straightened that out. We've also done training with our election officials through the GBI signature match, learning the techniques that they use to verify signatures. Now, the Republicans say they loosened it to the point where only 0.03 percent of these applications were thrown out, where a much higher percentage in previous elections. What are we supposed to believe? Well, do remember that in June or in March, actually, for the presidential preference primary that got postponed and the June primary and July runoff, which were debacles in the precincts on election days in terms of handling the new equipment, et cetera, that every Georgian voter received an absentee ballot application for the primary. 1.2 million of those got cast. 2.1 million votes were asked for, but 1.2 million were actually cast, which is not far off the number that cast in November. Doing that multiple times in a six-month period, I think voters are now more accustomed to what has to be checked, where you need to sign, that you can't use a pencil. And you and I talked about the last time we talked on, on radio on your show, I do think the president's lawyers have a point of vulnerability that they're still not attacking, and it's in two areas. One is 
ballot curing, which we can spend a second if you have the time yep, explaining what it. that is, and it doesn't go on in a lot of other states and jurisdictions. And the other is Stacey Abrams and Fairfight Georgia were able to get 22,000 names back on the rolls after the purge that's required by both state and federal law to update after presidential election cycles. If you don't participate as a voter for six years, you're contacted by postcard asking you, are you still there? Do you still want to be a registered voter? Are you alive? They got 22,000 of those names, which have addresses, which have socials, all that, back on the lists. And I know myself, a prominent reporter, the head of the AP at the Georgia State Capitol who died in 2012, he voted. Um, his wife doesn't know how he voted, but she went online to check and wow. her name and his name and, and David Pettis – or Dick Pettis, pardon me – voted. So I've told the GOP. I've told the president's campaign. Cross-check that 22,000 inactive list with decedent lists from county coroners, people who died of COVID this year. And if they can find and identify several hundred or thousand people who were dead who voted, then I think they might make it, start making some traction. But they don't seem to want to focus there. They seem more interested in sort of muddying the waters, and I don't think it's an effective strategy. They've been tossed 33 legal actions filed to date. Or 35 filed today, 33 tossed, and the other two haven't been ruled on yet. Are we to believe that David Perdue is more popular than the president in Georgia? I think it's more – and of the 80 million ballots that they claim that the vice president received in all states, I would you know, anecdotally guess that half of that was actually just a vote against Donald Trump. And, and I don't doubt that there was some small degree of ballot fraud, but unless you can demonstrate – conspiracy link multiple ballots in a single jurisdiction or location, I don't think you can slow the train down for the Electoral College to meet on December the 14th. Bill, you made some great points and great advice. Hopefully the right people are listening and will reach out because you know the facts uh, and you get a, you take the opinion out of it. Bill Crane, Senior Communications Strategist and Chief Political Analyst, uh, commentator with the, uh, WSB Radio and TV. It's as big as it gets in the country. And also there's a column called One Man's Opinion. Uh, it runs in several uh, dozen daily and weekly newspapers. Bill, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Always a gracious host. Take okay. care. Okay. Back in a moment. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. On the, 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 the far left, that would go, well, who do? There is a lot on that illiberal left that absolutely condescend, patronize, and are arrogant towards that other 50%. Many people were in, I'm sure you saw it, in our industry when Trump was voted in four years ago. They were in denial that it was actually, that it was real. This, and some of them went, were in absolute denial. I, and even, even now, we're going to see how we, if we can stabilize coming out of, looks like Biden's our guy. Well, now you've got... <laughs> Now you've got the right that's in denial because they're saying it's fake news. And I understand they've been fed fake news. No one knows who the hell to believe, right? Matthew McConaughey on his book tour, Green Lights, uh, talking politics. We try to get him into that being respectful, but he knows when he makes these statements, it becomes international news, right? He does. And he actually said something similar with us, right? In order to have right. Oh, 100%. In order to have a meaningful conversation with someone, um, you need to sort of acknowledge their position, right? Because if you just say everything you think is wrong and doesn't exist, you can't even have an intelligent conversation with the other side. Oh, believe me, I'm getting that uh, since the election. How many people write me saying they're never going to listen or 
or uh, watch again because of something happened on election night. But yet they were quoting what you said earlier that day in the email. Right. Because they were watching you and listening to you that day, but saying, I'm never watching you again. True. Uh, But I've never seen such volume. I mean, obviously there's Newsmax and uh, One News, whatever. They're behind some of it. A lot of people are ticked off. You can't just do this show and tell people what they want to hear. I thought we were supposed to ride the news and give analysis along the way. Why does analysis have to agree with someone's preconceived thoughts? It doesn't. You're doing the right thing. Right. That's why you're here. And you're it, agreeing with me. You should push back. Great job, Brian. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.